to The Purpose Edge, where we explore interesting career and life stories to gather insights that will help you live a life with greater meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. And at the end of the podcast, I'll add some extra thoughts around the purpose themes raised in our conversation. My guest today works in the medical devices industry and has a range of interests, most of which start with the letter C, and we're going to discuss a few of them along with one or two others. His name is Michael Kennedy, so welcome to The Purpose Edge, Michael. Thank you, Phil. Um, I'm um, wrapped that you wanted to invite me along and I'm uh, excited to be here and, and have a chat. Yeah, well, I, I know a little bit about your story um, and we, we're going to go to the 22nd of February 2011. So um, perhaps you remember where you were on that day and what was going on. It's one date that is firmly etched in my brain and um, it's it was a, a day that should have just been a a relatively boring day because I was at a medical conference in um, Christchurch uh, as a representative for a medical device company, and um, it was uh, it was about I just finished lunch and it's it's one of those things now that I can recall sort of every still image from about ten to one for the next five minutes or so in vivid detail and I remember putting my plate down walking back to our medical stand when all of a sudden I heard this this rolling sound it sounded like a jumbo jet sort of about to land so I heard before I felt anything and then all of a sudden kind of all hell broke loose the the earth started shaking and straight away I've never been in an earthquake before but I obviously I knew what was happening and then the instinct to just survive and get out of the building was um innate and that's what i did i i ran for the exit yeah so it just kicked in you just thought i'm going for that exit kicked in and to this day i I still have that kind of slight sense of guilt that i my first instinct was to run and and self-preservation rather than perhaps thinking of who's around me and and whatever i just fled straight for the egg along with a, a lot of other people who were nearby at the time and that run to the exit seemed to take forever and um, we were actually in the convention center in christchurch so we were sort of in the middle of it and uh, had to run through a door and then out through the hallway and um the ceiling panels were starting to fall at the time so they weren't um quite heavy things but I I can remember one it was almost like it was floating and I could see it falling down it just slightly hit me on my shoulder was it those Uh, foamy things or was it something a bit yeah it it was um yeah it was very light it was kind of a foamy thing and they were all sort of falling down like rain um and but more than that that you know you're running and as Phil I know that you're a runner one thing you like to feel when you're running is the ground underneath your feet Yes. And it was one of those occasions where you would you'd put your foot down expecting the ground to be there and it was gone it wasn't there it was and and then you were running your foot was falling on the other side and somehow I maintained my balance and got outside um where the ground was still shaking not as badly um but it probably went on probably no longer than about a minute a minute and a half um mm. I'm not sure exactly how long it shook for in hindsight, it probably, as you say, probably felt a lot longer than it really was. It it did, it did, and I, I and a lot of people felt the same in um, discussions that I had with um, colleagues 
and um, and people afterwards. So, yeah, and um, after that, it was sort of catching your breath and just sort of taking in, processing what had just happened and what we were going to do next. I think um, I'm interested in what you said about a level of guilt because you headed for the exit and this has been the subject of a, a movie people have been talking about recently and I forget what the movie is, but I think it's one where there's an avalanche coming and there's a family eating out on the deck and the husband just takes off and this this becomes the sore point for the whole story. But I, I think, you know, in terms of courage and what you do in the moment, we like to think we're going to be extraordinarily measured and brave, but when the, something happens, you can you can just go into flight mode and things become automatic, I suppose. It, it, I think so, and and you know I didn't, and it was part of uh, myself that I I hadn't really anticipated either, and certainly you know in the next couple of hours after that there was a lot of people that needed assistance with you know um, sprained ankles and um, minor sort of injuries from fleeing buildings. There was yep. certainly a lot more serious injuries further into the city, um, but. You know, the city itself came together like the professionals within like 15, 20 minutes. There were streets already being cordoned off. The um, the rescue people were on site and essentially didn't have everything completely under control, but relatively speaking, it felt like that. Um, so, yeah, we were, um, after that it was um, just making sure that the people we were with where everyone was okay and, we at least were able to make our way to the centre of Christchurch um, in Hagley Park, which is basically a flat expanse where they wanted everybody to um, evacuate to. And were you aware at that, well, when did you become aware that lots of lives were lost in that? Oh, not until um, perhaps two or three hours later when news was um, trickling. Because you have to remember back then, 2011, I think I had a one of those old sort of Nokia phones. Um, it didn't have much battery power left. The network was down, so you couldn't get any information one way or the other. Um, I couldn't even get a text out to my wife back home that, um, you know, I'm in an earthquake, I'm okay, because um, no doubt news was probably trickling back to Australia about what was happening. Mm. So, um, yeah, it... it, it it was a while before we realised um, just how serious it actually was. So we're recording this as uh, I think today I saw the earthquake in Turkey and Syria has hit, hit I think, 47,000 deaths. Yes. So what do you think when you're looking at what's going on there, given the experience, you know, you've, you've been in that situation? What, what are you thinking about that? Oh, it, I mean, it's it's hard to process that kind of destruction and loss of life. And I don't think unless you're in, you're there, you, you've got any concept of just what that would mean to um, those people. And it, I guess it highlights a couple of things. It, it highlights just how vulnerable we all are to nature's um, impacts at times, but also in countries where they're, they're really not set up to be able to cope um, and I'm talking about the structure of buildings and things like that. So in, in Christchurch, I'm no expert, but I'm, I believe that the buildings that collapsed were perhaps ones that weren't uh, designed well enough to tolerate 
the impact of the earthquakes. Now, in places like Turkey and, and Syria, well, of course, you know, the buildings that go up uh, are relatively low standards, so they're going to collapse more. But the population is high as well. But, yeah, it, it, um, it's, uh, I've been following the news quite closely, and, and I know even, um, I believe, yesterday they had another major uh, strong quake with more loss of life. And, wow. Um, it's awful. It really yep. is. It blows your mind. Um, this is a weird question, but can you remember what you had for lunch on that day? Uh, you know, I don't remember exactly what I ate. It's funny. I can remember the, the look of the plate uh, after I'd finished because I, I, I always put my knife and fork together on the plate when it's finished. And I remember having done that and just popped it down on a little table. But I, as to what I actually ate, I don't remember beforehand. I certainly remember what I ate afterwards. Um, because we didn't have any food on us and there was no food um, available in, in the centre of um, Hagley Park until probably four or five hours later when the army came and started handing food packs out. So a friend of mine, a colleague who was with me um, at the time, managed to find a corner shop where we um, uh they were already rationing water and confectionery items. But we each got uh, a Mars bar and a, uh, and a soft drink. So I, I distinctly remember rationing that for a good couple of hours. Okay. Oh, that's good. Um, what, I guess, if you go forward a year or even to today when you're thinking about that, did it have a material impact facing that mortality situation and thinking I'm lucky perhaps that I got out of it? What sort of impact did that have on your life? It it certainly did. Like I realised, you know, afterwards when we realised that the loss of life and and it was before I had 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 lunch in the room uh, in the um, auditorium at the convention centre. I'd actually walked back from the hotel in the centre of Christchurch. Um, and that, so that would have been about 25 minutes before the quake hit. And I had walked down the main street of Christchurch where buildings had collapsed and people had died. So I was certainly realised how fortunate we were to be where we were at the time. Mm. And it was funny because I, I thought I was fine. And I got back home and um, the company I worked for at the time got me home as quickly as they could. I had a couple of days sort of, um, off just getting a few things because I'd, I'd lost everything for my possessions that I had taken over there. They were in the hotel, which was um, you, you, you were unable to enter it and ultimately it was um, demolished. Um, but, and I thought I was okay and then it was, you know, probably a, a month later and a couple of people, my wife uh, for one had noticed I was sort of reacting a little bit sharp and, I was a little short with my comments about things. And uh, after some, you know, um, hard, good hard looks at myself, I realised that I, I was sort of having maybe had a, a slight degree of post-traumatic stress and that I was sort of um, needed to deal with it on a, on a sort of deeper level. So the company I worked for at the time actually had the, um, the service where, employees could talk to um, psychologists and, and just have someone to talk to about because there were there were certain things that I saw on the way back 
to the um, park that I realised, you know, with squash cars and things like that, that there were, you know, there were people in that. And I think I'd kind of dismissed, not dismissed it, but sort of thought, yep, that's okay, I can deal with that. So certainly having those discussions with a, with a professional, and I had maybe three or four sessions, uh, was really valuable. And that was another lesson for me because I'd already dismissed all that sort of, um, you know, um, kind of therapy that, you know, just chin up, you'll get over it. But I, I realised that it was the talking and someone listening and understanding what, you know, um, had gone through. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong, I didn't really go through anything compared. I didn't lose anyone. I wasn't injured. I, I was fine. Um, but even it, it you may makes you realise that those people that do suffer trauma um, and and lose someone, just how much help they may need. Mm. Um, so that helped. And um, after that, you know, I was um, I was pretty good. And when the anniversary comes around each year, I do sort of have a think about it. But um, And I, I've been back to Christchurch a few times and I, I certainly don't stay in any high-rise hotels when I'm there. Um, but I, um, yeah, I, I've certainly got a soft spot for um, New Zealand in general, but certainly Christchurch. Mm. I wouldn't normally mention date the date of a recording of one of our podcasts because they're pre-recorded, but I've just realised today is the 12-year anniversary of that event. I thought you knew. I did not know. <laughs> I didn't. I did not put two and two together. Together, yeah. Because the, this week's felt like. Um, it's had five days in it already, and I think we're up to Wednesday. Um, yeah. So it's a bit lost in time. So there you go. Well, um, very in, very coincidental, perhaps. So uh, I know you you mentioned you're a keen runner, and and we've uh, had running conversations before. What? Uh, but I think you became more of a runner after this event. Is that correct? I did. I did. It, it inspired me because I've been working quite hard in a medical device company, but it's not a great lifestyle for health sometimes and I, I put on a little bit of weight I um I used to be quite active and and I remember just kind of thinking man if 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 I had too much weight on I might not have been able to run out of that building quicker silly just a silly thought but it made me motivated when I got back home to be get a little bit fitter and I actually started uh, actually with a some brisk walking, which quickly developed into um, some running. And running has never been anything I've been interested in. I always used to laugh at joggers and why would you, why would you be running when you could be playing, playing sport, playing some tennis or doing something a little bit more, perhaps what I thought was stimulating because I didn't understand running. I didn't understand what the benefits were and, and not just physically, but mentally. And um, so I, I slowly became, addicted to to running and you would typically run well, how many times a week and how far oh look if i can i i will do between 30 and 40k a week um and that could be broken up with you know four or five runs and that can be running in the trails in the mountains which is my preference or or running along the cycleway along the beautiful coast of the illawarra um so describe that feeling why is trail running better than footpath running you know, it's for a long while, I, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on why it was so different because I actually started, I wasn't running in the trails. I was running on nice sort of manicured pathways and 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 it was um, a good friend 
who coerced me into taking on doing some trail running. And, you know, it was that immersive uh, decluttering sort of aspect of running where you were not surrounded by infrastructure. You were in, um, you were in the forest. The, the, it was a term I learned much, much later. It's a Japanese concept of, um, they call it Shinrin-yoku. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it essentially translates as forest bathing or just taking in the atmosphere of the forest. And there's something magical, as anybody who spends time in nature knows, about it's just you um, and nature and you're running through the trails. And I think because the trees are quite close, everything's moving quite rapidly, but then you've got the slow sound of the birds in the background. And it's just, I don't know, it's kind of one of those things where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, mm. I think, trail running. And mm. it's, I find it mentally just so rewarding. And that decluttering for me is really important. I can just forget about everything else. Um, of course, I'm recording my run, Phil, and, it, <laughs> you know, I love, I'm a stats man, so I'm still, you know, but that's happening in the background, and when I get back, I'll um, I'll upload my stats to a certain app. Um, but that immersive trail running is um, is perfect, and we're blessed down here in the Illawarra to have beautiful trails. They're free, they're accessible, and it really is quite beautiful. With an asterisk over accessible, but that's that's a story for another time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it was almost a little bit meditative there when you were talking about that. Um, you, you slipped into some sort of trance-like state when you were talking about it. So I think the listeners will get a sense for that. And and I think when you get a, a nice winding path, um, yeah, you do feel that total immersion, which um, which is really highly valued. And, and people prescribe this. Uh, I think medical practitioners do prescribe forest bathing as a, as a thing now. Um, so you're effectively getting it for free. Yeah, yeah, um, I can see why that would be quite a benefit um, as a, a, pr a prescription. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so that leads into a little bit more about running. And apart from the fact you like running, uh, I want to get to some of your volunteer activities in a moment. But the other thing to touch on before that is it seemed like 10 years ago, running a marathon was a pretty big deal, like 40Ks or 42.2Ks is a big deal. Looking around today and when you see what the running communities are like, not just here, but everywhere in Australia and around the world, you see people doing 40K runs sometimes more than once a week as, as training. What Have you noticed that trend? Um, oh. Would you validate that? And if so, what do you think is really driving it? That is a really good question, and I can absolutely validate that. In fact, um, I'm a member of the um, the Seacliff Coasters, which is a local Illawarra um, trail running group, and we just had um, our annual picnic and award ceremony. And that there are people in the group who are running in events a hundred miles, um, and which is called a miler, isn't it? A hundred miles is what they call a miler. Yep. Correct. Yep. So that's it's That's right. So that's uh, what's that? About um, 100, over 150 um, kilometers of, of running. I mean, it's it's astonishing. And these people are doing it in sort of that 24 hours or less, um, and of all age groups. Uh, 
in, you know, in, I, I know one person in particular in their 60s who's running these events. So you're right. So, so now the marathon, people are doing it. It's their sort of almost a weekly training run. I'm not. Um, I should point out, and that these people are um, heroes in my mind that they they can do it. But I think, I think I don't know whether certainly COVID has um, got people out running a lot more because I I don't know if you remember, but there was that we were restricted to a certain kilometer radius yes. um, at one point. So everybody was looking where where can I go and exercise, and 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 a lot of people went out. Sort of exploring their their local surrounds a bit more, um, and since the restrictions have lifted, like the the running um, events are just inundated with people wanting to not not compete, they just want to experience the run and run with a a, a group of like minded people, um, and I, I think that's a big part of it. It's that um, that social um, camaraderie aspect of running that a lot of people really, really love. Mm. Um, and you know, I do too. As much as I love my solo runs and 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 my decluttering time, I love running with a group and and um, just chatting about whatever that may be. Um, but certainly, running um, has, I think has increased in uh, popularity over the last certainly five years. Mm. It'd be interesting to know a bit more about that. There's probably lots of factors. And one one thing I remember is I tried surfing for a while or bodyboarding. And by the time I got my gear in the car, I got down to the beach, got set up in the water. Um, it seemed like a lot of time had elapsed before you even got involved in something. And even then the surf might not be up that day. So one of the great things about running is it's pretty much like by and large an all weather sport, not completely all weather, but nearly all weather. And it's pretty immediate. I wonder if, if that's got a, a yeah, role to play. That's a really good point. It's, it's, it's arguably probably the most accessible uh, activity that you can do uh, outside walking. Um, yeah. 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 So uh, another perspective, uh, and I want to get into um, the park run in a moment, but it's a guy I used to work with used to say, I don't know why you do all that running because we've all got a finite number of heartbeats and you're just <laughs> using yours up too quickly. And um, and I thought, well, maybe he's got a point there, but probably my resting heart rate is going to be lower as a result of my running. So I'm not sure mathematically how it would work out. Do you have a view? Yeah, I think that's a really good argument, actually. And and then I guess you you, you ask yourself, well, how do I want to spend my life with my heartbeats? Um, you know, and I think that is a really important part of it. You could sit quietly in a corner protecting those heartbeats, but your heartbeats there are to be used. And I think, you know, everyone has something that they want to use them for. And I think running is, you know, for a lot of people, that's exactly where they want to use some mm. quality heartbeats. That sounds like the title of someone's biography or an autobiography, My Heartbeats and I. <laughs> I'm just going to write that down, Phil. <laughs> well, maybe that can be yours. So you got quite involved in parkrun, and maybe just explain what parkrun is because it's quite popular in, in I think, in various parts of Australia and overseas. It comes from England, but just explain what parkrun Yeah, Yeah, so parkrun did originate in England, and it just started off as a, a group of people who, during the off-season, um, just met on a Saturday morning to do some serious sort of 
5K time trials. And word got out and um, one thing led to another and eventually they were doing it in various places around England and it and they quickly realised that it was morphing into a, more of a community-based five-kilometre event rather than elite athletes running five kilometres. And within, you know, um, you know, a few years, there were park runs popping up all over the England, and essentially, it's um, a com it's a free five kilometer run or walk every Saturday morning um, in Australia. It can be between seven um, and eight a.m. Um, and they um, are open to everybody, and it um, has taken Australia by storm. I believe Australia is um, is perhaps the second most uh, frequented country for park runs, but they're in many European countries um, and now in the United States as well. Um, so I became interested in it when it was actually my sister who talked me into um, join, showing up one day at um, the Sandon Point Park Run at Bullock. And uh, I remember waking up feeling a bit intimidated and, and it's a common uh, thought for a lot of people who are doing their very first park run. They turn up, they think, well, I, I can't run. I'm not a runner. And I quickly realised that after two or three um, goes that it wasn't about, you don't have to be a runner. You just, there is no, it's not a race. And I think that was the really important part of it. It's a, it's, it's a run. And then, after doing maybe 20 or 30, I started to get to know people a lot. And I realized that a lot of people were coming to park run, not, not for the run at all, but for the community connections. Um, and park run relies on volunteers. So those volunteers are, are runners who write, I've done six or seven park runs. I'll put my hand up and I'll be a marshal next week, or I'll be a timekeeper or, and so I, I started to get involved with that um, and I started to really get more of a kick out of volunteering um, than I did with running. I realised just how much people appreciated it, uh, how much fun it was to be um, within, a, within a team working to get this event um, up and running every Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. um, so... Yeah. So, and then I, I moved from that into um, becoming one of um, one of the run directors at Sandon Point, which sort of became my home run, um, despite new park runs opening up closer to me. But that sort of became that uh, my home run. I'd made lots of new friends there, um, and I really got a kick out of um, being a run director. And I, you know, I, I'm not. A natural public speaker. I'm. Um, I would class myself as introverted, and um, you know, I'm. I'm very sort of um, process organised as well. And I, I just thought I was going against the grain a little bit, but I wanted to sort of, you know, just challenge myself a bit and to take it on. And and I was asked actually if, if I'd consider being a run director there. So. I did, and I've, um, I think I've done that now about 24, uh, 25 park runs um, as a run director at Sandon Point. Mm. So even though that might involve, I'm sure there's a lot of admin behind the scenes, 
that other <clears throat> that people runners probably don't know about. However, just the fact that you're doing something with other people, achieving something together as a volunteer team, for example, gives a lot of people a good kick. And it sounds like that's what you're getting. It is, it is. And and I'm now the event director there. So I, I, I sort of try and manage the, um, well, not try, it's easy to do. I, I manage the, um, you know, dealing with council things and, and making sure that the, um, the other run directors have got everything they need and things like that. Um, and I've been enjoying it. I've got a great team. And the, the beauty of it is I know that everyone's doing it because they want to do it because they're volunteering. You know, it's not a paid position. It's something that they they think a lot of and they um, really value that sort of, you know, community involvement. So it's one of the best sort of community initiatives I've ever seen and um, and it's addictive. Oh, my God, it's addictive. There, there are things like, you know, I'm trying to get my alphabet of park runs now. So um, just explain I, 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 explain what that is for listeners. So every park run obviously starts with a letter. Sand and Point in Bulleye starts with a letter S. Um, so there is badges that people like to collect, and one of those is the alphabet. So you, you need a park run that starts with every letter of the alphabet. Okay. Is there a Z and a Q? Are they easy to track down? So every letter is available except for oh, the letter X. X, Okay. So 25 letters is, is, is acceptable and um, we're fortunate in Australia to have every letter available um, except for the letter X. Okay. Does so anywhere in the world have a letter X? Sorry? Is there anywhere in the world with a letter no. X? No. No, there isn't. Wow. Well, just um, imagine if, if you're a town out there starting with a letter <laughs> X, if you set up a park run, people are going to come from all over the world to do it. They would. They, they absolutely would. People, uh, there are parkrun tourists. There are people that just live for their next parkrun. And um, like I said, it's very addictive. They they reward people with um, T-shirts for milestone runs at 50, 100, 250 runs. There's also volunteer uh, T-shirts. And, and so they, you know, reward people for that kind of um, effort. But it's a... Uh, it's a great way for people to have their own personal goals um, as well, you know. So some people do love to try and get their PBs and, and break that. Um, others are just looking to reach a certain number of park runs. Others just don't care about that at all. They just want to rock up on a Saturday morning and enjoy their half mm -hmm. hour to an hour of, um, of being out and uh, being active and having a chat including people pushing the prams and uh, and walking the dog and and, and, all sorts and of running dogs. Yeah, yeah, don't get me started. But, yes, yes, no, we love our dog runners. Um, I, I'm a dog lover myself. and um, But on a short lead, yeah? On a short lead, Phil. Yes. You've got it. You must okay. have had the briefing a few times. That's right. <laughs> so I want to switch gears a little bit now and talk about career and you, I believe, had some moment where you went from being a researcher in, into a medical device company. So what what was prompting that? Yeah, so I had um, I was lucky enough to get a job um, as a research assistant straight out of university um, where I'd studied science with no real sort of career in mind. I did science at university because I love science, no other reason. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I was lucky enough to get a job as a research assistant um, uh, 
for uh, a colorectal department at um, George Hospital in Sydney, where I was for, um, you know, around 12, 13 years. And it was fabulous. I, 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 I went from working in a lab and um, to sort of working with patients and looking at putting research projects together to try and, you know, uh, work out what was going to be of most benefit for patients. So it was really rewarding. Um, and, you know, then after a time, the opportunity came up to move across to work for a medical device company. And I oohed and art about it. It was a big decision to move from, you know, a, a secure sort of public hospital uh, research position. Um, and, you know, like I'm a creature of habit and uh, I, I sometimes think I'm a, a little bit averse to change. But I decided to take the plunge and I'm so glad I did. It was um, it was very different on, on the one hand. You were, you were working for a private company um, with their shareholders and and um, and all that behind them but ultimately it was about getting this technology to patients who were suffering um, the particular area that I was uh, focused on was um, bladder and bowel dysfunction and it was for uh, people who had failed conservative treatments and you know were sort of at the end of their tether and and so once they reach that stage, they have these third line options of uh, medical devices, so implantables um, that can potentially help uh, these patients. So that was the technology I was working with. And it was, um, and I moved across because I knew that it worked. And, uh, and it was a real privilege because not only was I able to work with the surgeons in the operating theatres and sort of, um, help with the setup of that but i was also had direct patient uh interactions as well with education and activating their devices so i, I got to see firsthand just how effective innovation and medical technology can really be in transforming people's lives and um it was just so so rewarding and mm. um i've never really looked back I guess it's one of those industries that is just naturally aligned with when people say oh, I'm doing something with purpose, you know, it is, it is aligned easily with doing something good because you have that very tangible connection to patient outcomes, for example. Yeah. So it's, it must be wonderful working in that type of industry uh, because you're going to feel good naturally about what you're doing. And I might uh, mention your company, that company name, because I wanted to highlight the former CEO, um, which of, the name is Bill George, and he was the CEO of Medtronic, and he's written quite a few leadership books, including one called True North. But I'm interested in hearing your take on this because I've heard him talk about setting some benchmarks or goals for the company, and initially I think they were looking at the number of seconds between or how long since we've helped save someone's life. Um and it was, I think he took a measurement and it was 100 seconds was the average time that elapsed between one of their devices being used to save a life. And he said by the time he left the company, it was down to seven seconds. Um, 
But I'm interested in your view. And I think today, I think it's now two per second or something like that. I'm interested in your view. Is that very visible as an employee and someone working there? Or is that more, is that more of a high level thing? No, that was absolutely visible as a, so um, Medtronic would highlight that fact every year um, as to the impact that their devices, um, which covered a wide array of medical devices from cardiac right through Medtronic's very large company. And so, yes, they would, and, and it was going down every year. And it wasn't just saving lives. It was more um, having an impact on someone's life. So, you know, there are a lot of medical conditions out there that may not be deemed life-threatening, but their quality of life is so restrictive that it's, you know, the, the, they could be housebound with their condition and they've got, just got no quality of life. They can't work. They, they're in pain or whatever it may be. So medical devices and, and not just Medtronic, who I'm no longer working for um, uh, now, but they um, lots of medical device companies have all sorts of um, technologies to try and alleviate people's um, conditions to give them essentially a quality of life. Um, and certainly there are life-saving devices out there too, um, but it's a, it covers a, a wide array. Mm. Uh, so it's about restoration, restoration, yeah. improvement. Absolutely. And, and therefore, um, and you, I don't know if you're willing to go into this in any detail because it is a like a company question, but would that sort of visibility of that goal and that purpose, would that really galvanise people in the company and to the extent, if you're sitting down having a deep and meaningful com uh, conversation about a strategy or maybe some expenditure or something else, would that come into that conversation naturally? Like how is what we're planning to do going to benefit our patients? Yeah, that's a really good question. And um, certainly my experience has been, um, yes, uh, in, in the sense that Medtronic and, and most medical device companies have their mission um, about, you know, uh, alleviating pain, um, restoring function, um, improving life. And this would be reiterated at least once a year at um, get-togethers for the employees. We would hear patient stories. So real patients with real devices would come in and talk about their transformations. And um, I know my time at Medtronic, that there was probably no more impact uh, that was more profound than hearing patient stories once. Mm. Yeah. And if if anything, maybe we didn't hear them enough um, because, you know, you, then you, you occasionally you can get lost in the, in the numbers and the business and making sure that, you know, that everything is rolling as, as, as expected, you know, because ultimately medical devices uh, you know it's a business as well um and and they're looking at making a fair profit and so all those things come into it so sometimes you can get a little bit lost in the weeds and and it's really important to try and you know take the time to rem remember what you're doing it for and i was a manager there for a while too so i i was compelled to make sure that i did that for my team um to bring them back, you know, when things weren't going well or for whatever reason they were having a bad week. What, you know, what, what, what is it that we're 
ultimately trying to do here. Um, mm. And um, it didn't work all the time, but it certainly worked most mm. of the time, you know. I, I heard him interviewed not so long ago, um, Bill George, and I think it was several years since he might have moved on now from Medtronic. Yeah. He had an interesting observation, which I'm not sure if it's a very American observation or not. It's probably not because he was talking about he'd read Bowling Alone, which was really a, a, a book talking about the decline in participation in local civic organisations. And he was making the point that, yes, that's a trend, but another trend is for companies or the workplace in some ways is becoming a new form of community um, and maybe taking up some of that slack, which I found a really interesting um, point to make. I don't know what you make of it because I'm still trying to get my head around it. What do you think? Yeah, um, I think, look, you know, the, the community part of things is is really, really important with with all um, aspects of, um, um, you know, medical devices and, and treatments because, you know, without their sort of, um, you know, hearing the impact, understanding the, the diseases and, and things like that, then, you know, you really, you can't just come in and just say, start pushing something without understanding what, what, what you're actually trying to, to do and who, who it's for. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, um, that's a really good question. Mm. Well, we can explore that more another time but i want to quickly just pivot to something um, before i send you into our rapid um three questions near the end but um you're right into crossword puzzles and i believe you create crosswords for a major news uh media organization i think is that right well uh the if you uh call the australian cryptic crossword club a major which we do <laughs> um but yeah it's a <laughs> it's a sort of a, a hobby i have in the background um so what my question is what is the purpose of crossword puzzles and i and i mean this seriously what purpose are they fulfilling in our society yeah well for me it's just a, a cerebral pleasure and a lot of a lot of people are a secret crossword lovers actually i mean it's one of the few mainstays of printed media that you will find in every newspaper You'll find it in there. There'll be a crossword taking up valuable real estate um, in a newspaper. So we, we know that people um, love doing them. I, I don't know. I think we uh, we all have uh, an innate sort of um, attraction or, or love of of words and 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 an interest in them. And I've always sort of loved sort of understanding the um, the origin of words and, and where they come from and that kind of sort of led into cryptic crosswords particularly. Um, and um, you know there's a there's a there's a good group of um, Australian cryptic crossword solvers and compilers um, who um, who just love the art of it and um, and it's fun, you mm. know we so it's um, creative it'd be very creative I imagine being the compiler. It is, it is, and and the English language just lends itself to cryptic crosswords. It's such a a beautiful language because it's evolving, it's it's taken in, it assimilates words from other languages. So we have lots of synonyms. And the words can be broken up. It's it's um it's a beautiful language for cryptic crosswords or crosswords mm -hmm. in general. Um, so I do. I uh, when I get the time, I I love just to sit down and and start compiling 
um, uh, a crossword for the magazine that comes out sort of once a month for the Australian Cryptic Crossword Club. Hmm. Cerebral pleasure. I like that. Now, um, the I guess the things we didn't get a chance to talk about, which start with C, apart from cryptic crosswords, which is heavy with Cs, are coffee, chocolate, canines, <laughs> cooking. So uh, lots of hobbies starting with C there. Yeah. Yeah. Leading into our wrap-up, I've uh, got three quick-fire questions. And, and the first one is, and I ask this of everyone, what does purpose mean to you in your life? Um, to me, it's it's kind of the essence of 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 who you are and and, and how you get up every morning. Um, so, you know, I I did mention that I don't work for Medtronic anymore, and and I didn't leave there voluntarily. Voluntarily, it was a restructure, and I had a, a good five six months off, and I loved it. I'll have to admit, I did lots of really interesting things, but I, an opportunity came up for me to come back to work for another medical device company. And I realised, you know what, I've missed, I've missed that, that patient interaction, that, that feeling that I'm contributing. Mm. But I think however it is, however you contribute um, to society is, is something that, um, you know, I really want that I find that I, I need just like I need to eat or to breathe. I, I need something that sort of gives you a reason to, you know, get up every morning. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Sitting on the beach every day on your own probably wouldn't be a lot of fun. No. Once no. a week be nice. <laughs> Once a week's okay. Though. Okay, so what going forward, second question, going forward, what's meaningful for you? And do you have clarity about what's meaningful going forward? So what what's meaning for me? Mm. Um, I think you know for me it's um, it's having friends and family around for me. That's that's my so you know if if I didn't have that, I think it would be really difficult to find that purpose. But I think that's what gives me my grounding, my meaning, and. It's through that that I can, you know, access other aspects like purpose. Mm. Um, and I think ultimately that's kind of, you know, what what I'm, you know, living for. It's it's the background, if you like, to everything I do is is family and friends. Mm. Wonderful. Final question, so you can stop sweating after this one. From your journey. One thing you found valuable um, about achieving a sense of meaning and purpose in your life? You know, that's the easiest question you've asked me, Phil. Okay, that's, what's the answer? I, I've, I've always had this. It, it's the first thing that comes to mind and it's one thing that I adhere to every day and that's it's really, really simple and I treat people the way that I would want to be treated. It's as simple as that and I think by doing that you can just accomplish so much and get through life um and it's easier said than done i admit but i i try and remind myself often that that's that's how i want to be mm. and and that would be my my small tidbit of advice um really wonderful well michael it's been a pleasure having you on the show thanks for coming on for a chat and thanks for sharing your purpose edge with us today it's my pleasure thank you for asking Phil. Right. thanks michael
Okay, so I've known Michael for some time. I've been running with him. I've participated in the park run that he helps manage and I've talked about purpose with him and purpose in the context of the companies that he's worked for over the years, which is why I really wanted to have him on as a guest. And three things worth taking away from this conversation in my mind are number one, unexpected events can play a big role in shaping our lives. In his case, it was being in that earthquake situation and talking about it with someone qualified to listen after the event really helped him, even though by his own admission, he said he was only mildly impacted compared to others. Secondly, running, walking, mountain biking on trails, if they're accessible to you, is like a free forest bath. It's good for our well-being. It's good for our headspace. For me personally, it's where I have great moments of clarity about important things in my life. Plus, Michael said he gets a kick from volunteering as well and helping runners. Um, so he's combining his uh, want to give something with something he loves pursuing. And thirdly, he's been inspired in his work because leaders would reinforce the why of their organization and customer slash patient stories really helped make it real for him as a, an employee and a manager in the businesses that he's worked for. And look, I can't wrap this up without reiterating the point if you live in a town or know someone living in a town starting with the letter X, there is a golden parkrun tourism opportunity that awaits you because people would come from all over the world to complete their parkrun alphabet. There's a link to Parkrun Australia in the show notes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to your friends. Please share it. And I'd love to get your rating so we can help more people hone their own purpose edge. Until next time, I'm Phil Preston. Bye for now.